Welcome to the Sky Above Us audio podcast series, where we discuss your questions about the heavens and share our love of astronomy with you. I'm James Alberry, manager of the Kika Silva Plaw Planetarium at Santa Fe College, and I'm joined by my colleague, co-host, and fellow space buff, Professor Andy Shepard. Great to be here with you, James, and to lend voice to your listeners and viewers. And it's been a while. Uh, yeah. We're about six months behind schedule here. Oh, my gosh, yes. Well, you know, <laughs> COVID-19 quarantining does that sort of thing because, you know, we haven't had access to the studio, and, you know, I had to let my beard grow, and it's just, it was a mess. Did, did you have to let the beard grow? Well, I, I was lazy. <laughs> <laughs> but here we are safe behind a plexiglass, socially distant. Yes, and, the uh, shield of silence. It's like the cone of silence, but flat. Hmm. Oh, well, maybe, <laughs> or I think we're ready to kick it off. Oh, and yes. We that, should probably start with the most important question. What literally is up? Oh, good good point. Yes, well, um, if you have had an opportunity to see the most recent episode of The Sky Above Us, episode 13, The Two Horses, uh, we talk about three conjunctions that are going to be happening with the moon and Jupiter, the moon and Saturn, and the moon with Mars. So three conjunctions the moon has with the planets. Mm -hmm. So the first is going to be on September 24th. And if you go outside about 9 o'clock in the evening and look toward the south, you'll see the moon right next to Jupiter. It'll be off to the right. Then the next day, the moon will be just to the left of Saturn and slightly below it. And the nice thing about the moon and how it goes around the sky, it follows a very similar path to the planets. But also, every month, it will be near one of the planets. And sometimes, you can actually see it pass directly in front of the planets, uh, as what we experienced last month with the Moon and Mars. So this coming October, on October 2nd, the Moon and Mars are going to have another close conjunction. And if you've never seen a planet before, these days are good times to know exactly what a planet is or what it looks like. Because... Planets look a lot like stars, except planets don't twinkle. So, and Mars is very bright right now, and it's very red. So we're going to be talking a little bit more about this in our next episode of The Sky Above Us, The Martian Opposition, because we are getting close to Mars in our orbit uh, over the next month, and we're going to be the closest we'll be to Mars for the next two years. So this is going to be a great opportunity to take out your telescope and try to see you won't be able to see the moons of Mars, but you'll be able to see its surface features uh, to a more or less reasonable degree. Um, <laughs> you won't be able to see, like, canals and so forth, like Schiaparelli and Percival Lowell thought. But if it's not having a planet-wide dust storm, you should be able to see dark areas and light areas if you have a really good telescope. And if you're fortunate enough to live in north central Florida like we are, it's yes. a gorgeous time to be outside mm -hmm. on top of that. Yeah, the humidity is 100%, and it has been cloudy for the last week and a half thanks to Hurricane Sally. Could use some respite. All right, jumping yes. ahead, I'm already mm -hmm. off script. I heard there will be a full moon for this Halloween. Yes. This is um, the, the 15th episode of The Sky Above Us is called the Blue Pumpkin Moon. Now, you're probably saying, why is it called hmm. the Blue Pumpkin Moon? Well, huh. If you ever heard of blue moons, a blue moon is, um, well, originally a blue moon was the third blue moon in a given season, but in 19, uh, I think it was in the 1940s, Sky and Telescope had published an article, and unfortunately the article said that a blue moon was actually two full moons in one month. So they actually, uh, two in a calendar month. So popular 
that that particular misnomer has been popularized over the last 60 years, mm. 70 years. So most people, we go with, because I, I think it's a little bit cooler, go with the fact that the moon being full twice a month makes it a blue moon. So you get about two or three of those every year. So this particular full moon is going to happen on Halloween night. And if you're familiar with all of the imagery that you see for Halloween, where mm. you see this witch riding on a broomstick in front of a full moon and, you know, cats and skeletons and stuff like that. Right. Well, believe it or not, we don't get full moons on Halloween very often. It actually only happens on every 19 years. Oh, wow. So the last time it happened was in 2001, and of course it's going to happen now, and the next time it happens will be in 2039. Yeah. It's fitting. 2020, everything is happening. Yeah, so no. Why we even, not? We even got two comets that were naked eye visible. Well, one fizzled, but the other one was really nice. And we also, yeah. 2020 has been quite a year. I will probably remember this one this year forever. But yeah, so on the night of Halloween, go outside, look at the full moon. I don't think it's going to be a super moon because I probably would have noticed that too. But if you're into seeing full moons on Halloween, uh, go out and see this one because you won't see another one for another 19 years. Oh, that's great. Well, now it's time for our favorite part where we answer questions you've asked about the cosmos. Uh, keep in mind, you could always submit future questions by visiting the Kika Silva Plot Planetarium Facebook page or send an email to podcast at theskyaboveus.org. So first question, I thought this is fitting for the first episode. At what age did you first become interested in astronomy and how did you become interested? Well, that's a very good question. Back in 19-odd <laughs> two, <clears throat> no, seriously though, um, my parents used to take me to the planetarium when I was younger because my dad and I we would watch Star Trek on TV, mm. and I always thought Star Trek was cool. And a lot of my colleagues in astronomy and, and planetariums in particular, we're all, we all want to be in Star Trek or at least fly through space. If you're so, listening to this podcast, you're nodding along right now. I'm yeah. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. So when I would, whenever I would go to the library, I would pick up books on space, science, those sorts of things, and particularly when it came to the space program. I really liked the Apollo program and the space shuttle program when they were, when they were active. So when I was about 13 years old, my uh, dad and I went to the planetarium. Oh, yeah, and we dragged my brother, too, my brother Christopher. Is this in South Florida? At yeah, at the Miami Space Transit Planetarium. So we went to the planetarium and saw a show called Child of the Universe. And the director of the planetarium in Miami was Jack Horkheimer. And this is one of the shows that he produced. And he produced it back in 1973. Mm. So, wait. No, 1972. Yeah, it was 1972. So, when uh, the show impressed me so much, because it wasn't a typical, you know, you're in the planetarium dome and you're looking at the stars and someone's droning on about, there's a big dipper and you use these two stars to point to the North Star and the North Star stays in the same point in the sky all the time. It wasn't one of those boring, boring lectures right. of astronomy. It actually told a story and it made us think about our place in the universe. And it inspired me to move forward with my love of astronomy. So at the end of the show, I went to the person operating the planetarium that day uh, operating the console and I asked him how does a person get to do what you do for a living because <laughs> you don't meet people who work in planetariums every day like you meet someone who works in a bank every day or a police officer or a fireman yeah, or a cook yeah. or a bank you know a banker but you don't meet a planetarium guy mm -hmm. 
And he said, well, we could bring you on as an apprentice. And I was 13 years old at the time. And I'm thinking, wow, me, 13, work in a planetarium? That'd be cool. So they brought me on to work as a volunteer at the planetarium on the weekends. And not only did I get to meet Jack Horkheimer, who I'd watched on TV all these mm-hmm. years from when I was nine years old up until that time. And they taught me how to operate the really big, cool machine in the middle of the room. And I found out that machine cost over a quarter of a million dollars back in the 1960s. So this is, yeah, this is all entirely mechanical at this point in time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We didn't have, we didn't have all the digital stuff mm-hmm. that we have today. I usually like to, to kid <laughs> in my day. We didn't have all this digital technology and full dome projection. We had a tin can in the middle of the room and had a light bulb in the middle of it and had holes in the tin can. And that's all we had. And we liked it. That thing had to get hot, though. Huh? Uh, no, actually, well, it was the, as technology grew in planetariums, they used bulbs that didn't get quite so hot. We used a xenon arc lamp. And xenon, I'll have to talk a little bit about xenon because we're going to actually talk about xenon xenon a little bit later in our podcast, uh, that particular element. But yeah, it stayed relatively cool. But the stars were crisp and bright and so forth. So they taught me my constellations and how to operate the big machine. And um, yeah, Jack Horkheimer at one point told me, you realize you were operating a quarter of a million dollar machine before you could even drive a car? (laughs) I said, wow, that's pretty cool. So I worked at that planetarium for about six or seven years. And then when I left Miami to go to the University of Florida, uh, I was going to originally be an aerospace engineer. I was going to go into the engineering program there. But I thought, you know, I really, really like astronomy. I'd love to be able to direct a planetarium one day. So I changed my major in my junior year from engineering to astronomy and physics. And that is how I ended up with my degree in astronomy from UF. And I did my graduate work at UF. And now I'm working at the planetarium here at Santa Fe College, and I will be celebrating my 11th year as the manager of the planetarium this coming October. Well, I think it's wonderful that you keep Jack's uh, jacket in your office. Um, yeah, I used to watch uh, Stargazers all the time, and originally the show was called Star Hustler um, because it was kind of like he was trying to sell you the stars and try to get you interested in space. Oh, right. Yeah. So the purpose of the show, um, The Sky Above Us, it's kind of an offshoot of the original show that Jack Horkheimer had in that I want to kind of, as Jack used to say, give people a kind of a celestial hors d'oeuvre, kind of get them interested in space and have them uh, search out more answers. And we kind of basically encourage people to go outside and look up at the sky and see things that you hear about all the time because most people don't realize you can see your zodiac sign up there there con- every constellation of the zodiac is visible from a city except for pisces of course pisces is it's big but it has a whole bunch of faint stars so don't even bother with that one but scorpius is good i, I love that <laughs> metaphor though i don't know if i can say the word or, or d'oeuvres or d'oeuvres or I, I can barely spell it so <laughs> <laughs> it's horse d'oeuvres it's one of those words you write it just looks wrong no matter how you spell it <laughs> but, yeah um Fun side note, it was at UF uh, where you and I crossed paths for the first time some 20 plus years ago. Now. Yeah. Oh, gosh. 20 years. And then to, to get reacquainted at Santa Fe was 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 really a treat. Yeah. I know. Horribly, horribly old. I mean, Young 20... Lex Shelton just whispered into our ears. Yeah. So old. Yeah. Lex is our, he's one of our production guys. Say hi, Lex. Silence. Okay. <laughs> That's uncharacteristically <laughs> silent. <laughs> okay. Right. We can Are always this... edit that out later. Maybe, maybe okay. time for another question. Okay. Uh one of your of yours asked, how is space expanding? And if it's doing that, can we warp or fold it like Star Trek or Battlestar Galactica? Jump. Ooh. 
Wow, that is a very good question. I added okay, the so, job there, by the way. Yes. Okay, so in regards to space, if we go back to some of the um, hypotheses and theories that Einstein had, that when um, Albert Einstein was doing his studies of space and of time, uh, he came up with a concept of what we call space-time, where space-time is actually a four-dimensional, I guess the best way to think of it is a fabric, where um, in our three-dimensional universe, you have width, length, and depth, but the fourth dimension is time, and if you weave them all together, or put them together, they're considered space-time. So objects that have a great deal of mass can distort space-time, and that is what we perceive as gravity and that is the warping of space-time. So objects that have more mass warp space uh, more intensely. So you have a gravitational field, Andy, and I have a gravitational field, but the Earth's gravitational field is so much larger compared to ours that it's negligible. But for and you're a bodybuilder. Yours is a lot bigger than mine, I'm sure. <laughs> well, maybe. How much did you weigh? About 170-ish. 170-ish. Okay, so, well, okay, weight and mass are different, but if we were to just talk about the kilograms, yeah, I, I'm probably a little heavier than you are. I'm like 180 pounds, mm -hmm. so, um, but not to go into the difference between weight and mass. But yes, if we were in space all by ourselves in our spacesuits, eventually we would accrete or clump together, uh, and we would be an Andy James or James Andy or something. Shepherdberry, <laughs> <laughs> or something. But that's what happens to particles in space. They clump together because of gravity. So the concept of possibly being able to warp space to travel places um, not only came on in science fiction, but um, scientists are thinking of ways that we can do that, one, without killing the people that are traveling. <laughs> because to warp space-time to a significant degree, you're going to need a great deal of energy because one of the, the equation that uh, Einstein came up with, which is one of the most popular equations in math and physics, E equals mc squared, basically means that the amount of energy that is contained, that mass and energy have an equivalence, and you have got the speed of light um, as, the, as the variable uh, squared. And, well, speed of light isn't really variable, but... It's, uh, it makes things a lot more complicated when you're trying to figure out <laughs> if you want to get somewhere in space because space is ridiculously big. It still takes years to get anywhere. So a tremendous amount of energy. Would yeah, be tremendous to amount of displace. energy to, to, display, to displace mass and get it to the speed of light. Yeah, so, so if we could warp space-time or make a wormhole or something like that, that would allow us to be able to get from point A to point B quickly. But... It's the physics of distorting space-time to that degree. Like there's some science fiction stories like Star Trek where they have what's called subspace and they can warp space-time. And mm -hmm. it's really it's a really cool concept. Um, we're not anywhere near the technological advancement to be able to do that. Um, um, but also you have hyperspace and, and other concepts where people can get from point A to point B. Um, now, as far as everything expanding, that has to do with our observation of distant galaxies. And when Edwin Hubble was processing data that he had collected in regards to studying galaxies, um, he noticed that the spectral lines uh, that he saw were shifted from where they normally are. Because stars have, uh, light gives off a particular fingerprint at um, 
or chemicals when they burn give off a particular fingerprint on the electromagnetic spectrum. And if they're moving toward you or away from you, that fingerprint or those spectral lines will shift either to the red or to the blue. So if they're shifted to the red, that means the object is approaching you. If they're shifted to the, no, if they're shifted to the red, they're receding from you. And if they're shifted to the blue, they're headed toward you. It's like if you're listening to a police car siren or a, or a fire engine siren, as it's coming to you, it sounds higher pitched. And when it's going away from you, it has a lower pitch because the sound waves are being stretched out as it's moving away from you. So anyway, when he saw that the galaxies were all <clears throat> red shifting, it told him, oh, that they must be moving away from us. And they're, they seem to be accelerating in their movement away from us. So that gave him the idea that, well, the universe, the fabric of space-time is expanding. So even though the two concepts of space-time and warp speed and the expansion of the universe are not initially related. There is there is a there is something there in regards to the fabric of space time that hopefully we'll figure out. Well, this definitely got very abstract for me very quickly. So let's ground us with the next question. Yeah, my brain hurts now. Um, just how big is the solar system? Is our mm. next question. Oh, I know because I watched a recent video. It's Hundred thousand light years across. Ooh, well the gal the the galaxy. Yeah, because okay, so you got you have the solar system. Oh, sorry, solar system. Yeah. That's okay. You have the solar system and you have the galaxy. The galaxy is very very big. It's so much. It's much bigger than the solar system. Our solar system is very very small compared to the galaxy that we're in. So we'll talk about the solar system um, first. Distances in the solar system. We don't really talk about miles or kilometers. Um, we astronomers that is because. The, the individual unit of the mile is so small compared to the distances between the planets, it's really tough to wrap your brain around mm -hmm. when you're talking about the distances between them. So we made a special unit of measure for the solar system called an astronomical unit. One astronomical unit is the average distance between the sun and the earth. Now in miles, it's about 93 million miles. And so the planets... Each planet from the Sun, Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, and yeah, Pluto. Um, but is it? Well, Pluto's a dwarf planet, but its okay. orbit is like all wonky compared to the others. We'll, we'll talk about pl Pluto in a different Topic episode. for another day. Yes, and I like well, that Pluto. warmed my heart a little bit. So yeah. <laughs> so um, each planet is almost twice as far away from the Sun as the previous planet. And early astronomers, there was an astronomer named Bode who... Um, said, hey, there must be a law for this. And they called it Bode's Law. At least, you know, each planet is twice as far away from the sun as the previous one. But it turned out that wasn't really the case. It was just a coincidence that they were all roughly that space. And it more than likely had to do with gravitational uh, distribution in the solar system. But not every solar system is set up like ours. But hmm. anyway, so Mercury is about... Um, 38% the distance from the sun we are. So it's about, it's 0.38 astronomical units. And then Venus is twice that at about 0.75 astronomical units. And we're one astronomical unit. And Mars on average is about uh, one and a half, almost two astronomical units. Uh, 1.8 actually, it's closer to two. And then Jupiter is five. And then Saturn is 10 approximately. And then Uranus is about 19, and then Neptune is about 30. 
per so the second. further we go out, the, the greater the distance. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, if you're talking about the speed of light and how long it takes to travel from point A to point B, let's say you're traveling at the speed of light from the sun. It would take you about eight minutes traveling at the speed of light to get from the sun to the earth. If you did that in a car at 70 miles an hour, it would take you 150 years. Wow. It would take you 75 years just to get to Mercury at, at 70 miles an hour. Even if I'm in a Tesla? Yes. <laughs> well, it depends on if it was on top of a rocket or not. Because <laughs> then, of course, that would, that would be different. Well, I guess there is a Tesla floating out in space. Yeah. You know, apparently making its way into uh, well, orbit somewhere. Right? Uh, yeah, actually, um, <laughs> for those of you who don't know, Elon Musk launched uh, a payload on top of uh, Falcon 9 about a year or so ago, I believe. And he put his, his roadster on top of it. So his roadster was supposed to go into Mars, but it, the trajectory didn't match no getting to Mars, but it's in a very elliptical orbit between the sun and Mars. So it's just orbiting in space. It'll, it's orbiting the sun, but it's, it's aphelion. It's furthest point from the sun is near the orbit of Mars and it's perihelion. It's somewhere just inside the orbit of, I think it's just inside the orbit of the earth or orbit of Venus. I'll have it's, to check. It's is that object hmm? detectable from a telescope, do you think? Mm, probably not. It's probably really small. It, yeah, it's very small. Oh. So only when it comes close to the Earth, which I don't think it's planned to come anywhere near Earth for a long time. But I would love to see how it's degrading in space because, mm. you know, it's got plastics and stuff. And plastic and ultraviolet radiation don't mix. Mm. Yeah, it becomes brittle and faded. But ding, 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 I completely uh, lost track of what I was the question I was answering. Oh. What question was I answering? Um <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I stepped all over you with my... I was so anxious to make the ding sound. We might have to edit that in post. Uh, how big is the solar system? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so it takes 150 years um, at 70 miles an hour to get to Earth from the sun. So that was eight minutes at the speed of light. Takes you about... Uh, takes you about half an hour. Uh, 15 minutes to get to Mars and 15 minutes to get back. So if you're communicating with... Uh, depending on where Mars is in its orbit, but if that's its closest, it only takes like 15 minutes uh, for light to get from Mars to here. Uh, it takes about one second for light to get from the moon to here. Uh, and then Jupiter is about an hour away at the speed of light, almost. And then Pluto is about four and a half hours away at the speed of light. So when they launched the New Horizons spacecraft and they had to change the programming and the computers on it, it took nine hours before they knew whether what they did worked because they sent it and then four and a half hours later, it got it, and then it sent back, yeah, I got it, and I'm, it's working, and it took four and a half hours for it to get back. So, yeah, and that's just to Pluto. It takes four and a half hours. So if you were to try to communicate to someone at another star like Alpha Centauri, it would take four years for them to get the message and take four years for the message to come back to us. The end of the solar system, if I recall, it's not exactly Pluto per se. What mm -hmm. is the... Yeah, there's a, a re yeah, there's a region or boundary, not really a boundary, but it's a, we call it the heliopause. That is where the solar wind or the radiation from the sun is having less of an effect than the cosmic radiation from all the other stars beyond our solar system. So that's where the relative radiation, I guess, flux is balanced between the sun and everything else. And Voyager... I can't remember which Voyager just crossed it recently, like within a year or two ago, or maybe three. Uh, one of them crossed the heliopause, or it's in that area now, which is exciting because now we can take measurements of things 
technically outside the solar system. But is this still collecting data and transmitting? Mm-hmm. Yeah, the signal is really weak, but it's measuring things. Oh wow! But the, the signal is so weak; it's weaker than the signals given off by your watch. So we have to very, very, we have to listen to them very carefully. Um, but still. The Oort cloud, which is a cloud of comets, that extends almost a light year from the sun. So it's going to be a while before it leaves that region. Um, so roughly the solar systems are around, give or take, a light year or so. Yeah, if you, ca- if you count the Oort cloud, it's about a light year. But if you're looking at bodies that we've, orbit, that we've calculated orbits for, like the dwarf planets like Eris and Makemake and Pluto, that's all around... 50 astronomical units, between 30 and 50 astronomical units is that region. So it's about, I guess in diameter, you'd say about 7 billion, 8 billion miles in diameter. Mm-hmm. Now, a light year is much, much further than that. It's like 6 trillion miles. Oh, wow. <laughs> that gives us some perspective. Well, kind of, well okay, here, th- if you think of it this way, a trillion and a billion and a million, they're all easy numbers for us to say, but it's really tough to wrap your brain around them mm-hmm. unless you think of... So say, for example, you all can you can understand the concept of one second, and there's 60 seconds in a minute, and there are 360 seconds in an hour. In... Um, let's see if I can remember the calculation correctly. It's been a while since I've done this calculation. One million seconds is about... Two weeks. A billion seconds, though, is a little over 30 years. Oh, wow. And a trillion seconds is over 30,000 years. Yeah. So when I think of our our fiscal debt being in the trillions, I'm like, there's no way you could pay that off. That's a lot. Let's just call it quits and just start over. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know what that sound means. It's time for our segment... Science fact or science fiction? All right, so if you watch or read science fiction, you'll likely find a lot of references to ion propulsion systems. But is that type of propulsion system fact or fiction? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, Ion propulsion systems are, in fact, a reality. So um, one of the things that we've been experimenting with over the years is different ways to send objects from point A to point B. Because right now you have the, the typical way of sending something from one planet to another is using a rocket and the rocket uses chemicals where you mix the chemicals together and the explosive force of those chemicals being brought together is fired out of an engine nozzle backward so that pushes the mass of the rocket forward Um, and it uses you know newton's laws of motion where you throw something in one direction and it you know there's an equal and opposite reaction so you have thrust going in one direction and then the object moves in the opposite direction. Now the problem with that is that in order to go really far or really fast, you have to have enough fuel to do it. And fuel has weight or mass. So the more fuel you add, the bigger your rocket has to be, the heavier your rocket is. And it it gets worse and worse. So like for example, the moon rocket, the Saturn V, it was three times the height of Century Tower. Is enormous. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was enormous and it weighed millions of pounds. So if we were going to send something to Mars, yeah, trying to build that on the Earth would be a challenge. So we've been looking at 
technologies like ion propulsion. Now, ion propulsion works almost the same way in that you are throwing something out one end and the, the opposite effect of that is to push you forward. And an ion is uh, basically uh, a neutral, um, like if you have an atom, atoms are made of small particles. They have protons, neutrons, and electrons. And the electrons orbit the proton neutrons, which are the nucleus. They orbit it kind of like a planet orbits the sun. Well, I was mentioning xenon earlier. Xenon is what we call a noble gas. That means all of its orbital shells are full. You can't put any more, um, you can't put any more electrons in orbit around it. Um, it's kind of like if you put, you know, all the planet orbits are full. You can't put an extra one. So that means it doesn't react with anything. That's why, that's what being a noble gas is. So anyway, what they do is you have a, I'm going to try to keep this non-technical, or as non-technical as I can. <laughs> but um, basically the concept is you have an anode and a cathode, and the uh, one attracts ions, the other one repels them. And as you are firing a, um, if you fire a subatomic particle at xenon, you can knock off one of the electrons and then make it an ion, and that goes flying out the back of the spacecraft, pushing the spacecraft forward. Now, the problem is it's a very slow acceleration, um, very slow. Is but this theoretical at this point? Or is no, there it's, actually ac it's actually, it has been used. Um, from 1998 to 2001, the NASA Solar Technology Applications Readiness, or NSTAR, ion propulsion system enabled the Deep Space One mission, the first spacecraft propelled primarily by ion propulsion, to travel over 163 million miles, and it made flybys of the asteroid Braille and the comet Borelli. And uh, the fuel for it is relatively lightweight, and even though it does expend the fuel as ions, it takes a lot longer for it to do it, but the acceleration, by adding that small acceleration for an extended period of time, because you can have the ion engine burn for weeks or months, and it will keep on accelerating and get faster and faster and faster. And it's conceivable that we could build ion propulsion engines that could accelerate um, a ship up to 200,000 miles per hour, which would be amazing. Not quite the speed of light. Actually, nowhere near it, but... You definitely wouldn't want to be in a convertible going at that speed. Oh, definitely. Well, unless it's a Tesla. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, speaking of Tesla, so um, are commercial uh, providers looking into this, or is it cost prohibitive? Like, what's what's holding us back from developing this technology uh, out? Yeah, uh, it's um, it's the cost, because also to make an ion engine isn't cheap, and then. Practical applications for it, for because you wouldn't be able to really use it to launch anything off the surface of the Earth. You would have to do it for missions that travel from one planet to the next, and hopefully one star to the next. But necessity is the mother of invention, so unless we have a compelling need to expand it further, um, it won't develop. You won't. We won't have uh, like interstellar space engine type things just yet. Probably, with, probably within 100 years, we probably will, but maybe our grandkids. Yeah. Well, <laughs> that noise tells us that our time is up for today. Thank you for submitting your questions. We look forward to an ongoing discussion about all things space. Until next time, I am co-host Andy Shepard. And I'm James Alberry. And I'm asking you to get lost in space. <laughs> and I'm saying keep looking up. <laughs>